Wow, look at all you lovely people. Sorry, it's taken a while to get us online. Bit of a uh, technology problem there, but uh, welcome to another exciting session. I'm Karen Fisher from the Social Policy Research Centre at UNSW Sydney, and I'm chairing the panel tonight. So the panel tonight is uh, about, is contracting welfare services different under authoritarianism? Taking a look at China. Uh, it's a very exciting week for me because it's the end of our uh, three years of research on this project on contracting welfare services to NGOs in China. Uh, it was funded by the ESRC and it's an international team from London School of Economics, uh, from Beijing Normal University and from my own university, University of New South Wales in Sydney. Uh, the research was in five locations in China in three sectors, children with disabilities, people living with HIV AIDS and migrants. Uh, some of you will have participated last night when we heard two wonderfully stimulating papers from a couple of our panelists today. And then we also have two other panelists who uh, jogged them along with a little bit of critical international in, uh, input there. So the way today will work is it's one hour. The panelists have about five minutes each to speak. Uh, we'll have the rest of you on mute while they're speaking, but you're very welcome to add your questions or comments in the chat function. When they've finished speaking, uh, we'll then take some questions from chat. Uh, if we don't get to your question tonight, we'll, uh, today in your time, uh, we'll certainly follow up with you later. Uh, so let me just briefly introduce the panelists. Uh, the first is Jude Howell, uh, who I'm sure most of you know, uh, is a professor in international development in the Department of International Development at LSE in the UK. Uh, her colleague, uh, Dr. Regina Anjuto Martinez, is a postdoctoral research fellow at this, also at LSE. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Natasha Cortez, is a Senior Research Fellow at the Social Policy Research Centre at UNSW Sydney. And a very warm welcome to Dr. Sean Shear, who's the Director of the Social Innovations Advisory, who spent 10 years working with two NGOs uh, in China, dedicated to strengthening the uh, civil society in China. So a, a great panel. And I'll hand over straight away to the first speaker, Jude. Thank you. Uh, you're on mute, Jude. Right, I was rather hoping I wouldn't be first, but here I am, as I spoke yesterday rather longer about why I do think that the nature of the regime matters uh, for contracting in China. And, um, Maybe I'll just repeat a few points that I made yesterday. Maybe I think what I'll do is start off with what, it, what I'll be talking about when we're talking about an authoritarian regime. And what, what is authoritarianism? And I would say an authoritarian regime um, is, is a regime in which power is invested in a single person or a dominant multi-party. It can take many different forms. It can be military dictatorship, theocratic state, secular state. Um, it can be a socialist state or post-socialist state. And that's predominantly what we're concerned with um, today in looking at um, China. And what is rather typical 
of an authoritarian regime is um, because there are not um, competitive party elections, succession is always a sort of challenge for an authoritarian um, regime. There is uh, very often, this is a very typical ideal type of authoritarian state, um, a lack of civil and political rights, a lack of independent courts and judiciary, and um, a media that tends to be controlled uh, by the government, and really highly constrained civil societies. And all of those things matter for issues around how the state tries to ensure stability of the regime, uh, to maintain the regime. Um, it, it matters for the articulation of interests and needs, and it also matters for issues of accountability. You know, how can we hold an authoritarian state to account? Now, many accountability is an issue also in liberal democratic regimes, but I would suggest that it becomes particularly difficult in authoritarian state because there are fewer institutionalized mechanisms for accountability. And also, um, it is much harder with a constrained civil society and media to reflect and project different interests and needs. So uh, we only have five minutes, so I, I would suggest that one of the challenges or dilemmas for an authoritarian state is that is trying to contract welfare services to NGOs is this, that NGOs have very often been under a lot of suspicion in authoritarian states and have uh, suffered various degrees of repression. Um, so, and now an authoritarian state that is trying to contract with NGOs has to persuade the NGOs that actually come in, you know, you will not be harassed come in in numbers because we need a lot of you to participate to provide a welfare services. But the problem, the dilemma for authoritarian state is how is it going to make sure that opening up these spaces, providing resources, doesn't also expand the space for groups that uh, may be challenging the regime or may have different agendas around rights or advocacy. So how to do this? And we see the way that they, uh, um, China, for example, tries to handle this affects the design, the implementation, the processes of contracting and the effects it has also. So I think that's enough for me. I think I've succeeded with that and um, I'd be really interested to hear the views of other panellists. Thank you, Jude. And for those of you who want to hear more from Jude, the, uh, last night's session was also recorded that you can have a look at. And we'll turn to Regina. Thank you, Karen, and thank you, Jude, as well, uh, for setting that scene. Um, I also wanted to re-emphasize uh, some of the arguments uh, that we made yesterday. Um, in Jude's presentation, focused on how authoritarianism mattered in the way that contracting is uh, taking shape in China. And uh, Jude, you mentioned a number of mechanisms in which that is panning out, uh, such as the use of mass organizations um, as hub organizations to manage the contract process and, and manage NGO service providers. You also mentioned the requirement of establishing party committees and the requirement of engaging with party building activities in the community. Uh, another requirement would be as well, um, local officials adding uh, to the contract requirements outside and beyond the contract stipulations. Um, 
another issue was the, that we found in the field work as well was uh, the government prioritizing trusted organizations, therefore creating a homogenous NGO sector uh, of service providers. And very importantly as well, in the way that the government defines service needs and defines lists with prioritizing certain groups and therefore excluding other groups from uh, accessing services and therefore excluding NGOs that provide uh, and that could provide those services. Uh, we also argued yesterday that contracting comes associated with mechanisms of control of NGOs such as additional financial constraints and managerialism that add already to that constrained NGO uh, sector and put additional pressure on NGOs driving them away from their mission and compromising their autonomy. And especially this is the case for NGOs that have uh, rights-based agendas and engage in advocacy. Uh, we argue that this is uh, not specific to China, that this is uh, coming with uh, contracting as it's based on the principles on which contracting um, uh, derives based on the ideas of new public management. And again, it's not specific to China, but we find this across uh, con contexts and across uh, different political regimes. Um, basically, we find in China that uh, there's divergence from experiences uh, in liberal democratic countries in that the nature of the political regime can explain the level or the scope in which the government uh, controls and intervenes into NGOs and the lack of diversity of an NGO sector, but there's convergence with liberal democratic countries in the sense of contracting being based on the similar um, principles and having similar effects on NGOs, uh, such as the financial caveats and the managerial and bureaucratic requirements that were mentioned. Um, uh, the question came yesterday that was a very important question from, from the audience and that I want to mention here is, um, is, is this um, the, the seemingly inevitability of the effects of contracting of NGOs across political regimes, not only under authoritarianism, is this by definition creating the same effects everywhere? So how can NGOs avoid mission drift and how can they retain some sort of autonomy while still providing through contracting. And in China, we have NGOs facing the double burden of authoritarianism and the controls associated to, to contracting. So how can they, they, they maintain some sort of autonomy and, and not drift from their mission? For sure, there are strategies that organizations are, are, are pursuing, such as balancing financial dependency or institutional duplication in order to be able to pursue um, their own mission. Um, but this is an open question as well for, for, the, for the discussion. And I would also like to hear from, from the audience on this. Thank you. Thanks very much, Regina. And so for a different perspective now, we have Natasha who's a expert um, on contracting in the more international space. Uh, so it'll be interesting to hear whether any of what Jude and Regina have said echo uh, your experience elsewhere, Natasha. Thanks, Karen. Um, so as Karen said, my work um, does focus on NGOs in Anglo context and in Australia specifically. I'm not sure I can answer, um, you know, these big questions about regime type um, and why it matters. But what I wanted to do is throw up some experiences 
uh, that have come through in research that we've done with NGOs in Australia, um, and and you know so that the to kind of prov provoke uh, some thinking in the audience about um, you know these bigger questions about regimes. Um, so. Um, I'm talking about uh, social services uh, in Australia in particular, and I'm really conscious that, you know, even within a single country in, um, you know, within, uh, you know, as an example of a liberal regime, uh, you know, every service type has its own kind of history and approach to contracting. Um, but um, I'm going to draw some generalisations um, across that, but recognising that, you know, I'm talking about what is essentially a really highly diverse and vibrant set of systems, services for people with disability, for vulnerable children, uh, perhaps uh, family violence, homelessness services. There's really you know, a lot going on in this um, NGO space. But what's really common uh, you know, in, in liberal contexts is this idea of competition. It's so deep rooted, this idea that competition uh, for government contracts is going to you know, help us achieve all these great things. Our market ideals of efficiency, lower costs, smaller government and better, more specialised services um, as uh, contracted organisations innovate to meet needs. Um, and we can explore how this uh, you know, plays out in practice for NGOs um, through some of our research with NGO leaders in Australia. Um, and it really does draw into question, um, you know, whether the benefits from co contracting, you know, even though we've had these systems in place for so many years now, you know, whether they are leading to the benefits that uh, were hoped for. Um, and what I'm observing across um, multiple pieces of research that we've done with NGOs is that this, you know, what we might think of as efficiencies arising from competitive tendering are actually that some really important things about service delivery and about quality are uh, being able to let kind of fall out of service systems. They're either not getting done under contract because contracts have narrowed in scope um, and, are, and are focused so tightly on direct service delivery now, or they've become very precarious and difficult to um, resource uh, in government contracts. So, um, our, um, we did a study last year at the Australian Community Sector Survey, um, and that uh, captured information from 400 leaders of organisations. Um, and what it showed was that less than one in four said their funding arrangements allowed them to innovate. Less than one in four said that funding arrangements were allowing them to evaluate their services. And less than one in four said arrangements allow them to plan for the future. So they repeatedly tell us contracts are too short, they're constantly at risk of losing contracts or having uh, pro programs restructured around them, sometimes for political reasons, um, rather than making, trying to make services better. Less than one in three uh, said contracts support them to, to collaborate. Less than one in three said contracts allow them to provide professional development for staff. And less than one in three said uh, their contracts enable them to genuinely involve consumers or people with lived experience in program design and delivery. So while you know contracting to NGOs may help government you know achieve this prized goal of efficiency, it may be that the things that make services good are being rationalised and undervalued, pushing services into what some scholars have called a starvation cycle 
whereby overheads, management capacity, and all these other um, you know, things that go into making services good just aren't possibly, uh, aren't, aren't properly supported. Um, so, you know, while we often think about contracting hollowing out the state as state actors lose their knowledge and capacity, uh, in liberal regimes, um, what we're seeing through our research is that um, contracts may also be a way that NGOs' frontline service capacity uh, is really kind of restricting or hollowing, or being hollowed out. Uh, so NGOs are exposed to the austerity of the state, they become dependent on the state, um, and infrastructure and capacity is becoming depleted over time. Um, and then it becomes really difficult to build up the financial reserves needed to break um, the starvation cycle. Um, so I think my time, my five minutes is probably up. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Natasha. Uh, certainly an inglorious uh, set of evidence there about com competition and contracting out. Thank you. Our, our final speaker on the panel to stimulate your comments and the chat function there uh, is Sean, who will uh, take us more to the experience of actually working in the civil society sector in China. Thank you, Sean. Okay, thank you, Karen. Uh, and thank you, Jude, for uh, inviting me to this. Um, <clears throat> my, my instructions uh, said I had eight minutes, but uh, I'll, I'll try to cut my remarks as short you can as I can. Use, you can use eight minutes, that's fine. Okay, okay, thanks. Anyway, um, so I, did, I do come from a practitioner um, perspective, but I also have been doing research on NGOs throughout my time here in China. Um, so my remarks are based on two set of interviews I conducted over the last two years. I, had, I did interviews with um, organizations working on labor, uh, migrant um, families and children, in 2018, and then in 2019, last year, I did um, a set of interviews with NGOs that were exploring uh, different uh, sort of alternative um, funding and business uh, strategies uh, in order to diversify their their funding. Uh, kind of, which gets, of course, to uh, government contracting and and you know this whole issue of financial sustainability. Um, so I, I think I will make three remarks, three broad remarks. Um, and number one is to me, and it's certainly helpful to hear the, the comparative perspective. Um, and unfortunately, I can only speak about China. But you know, the first thing is that government contracting in China is taking place um, in a larger NGO sort of ecosystem where major changes have taken place over the last 10 years. I think that's important to, to, um, to recognize. Um, and I think this is uh, touched on by Jude and Regina uh, yesterday. Foreign funding for Chinese NGOs has declined substantially, especially after the overseas NGO law, which made it difficult for foreign funders to support Chinese uh, NGOs. Uh, as a result, domestic funding has become much more prominent. Uh, and I think Regina talked about this yesterday. I don't, I don't have numbers, but my interviews with NGOs suggest that government contracting is now the largest funding source followed by Chinese foundations, which have been kind of stingy with their money, uh, some crowdfunding and some self-funding in the form of like social enterprises, uh, consultancies and so forth, where uh, NGOs charge fees for their services. Uh, under COVID, this funding situation has worsened. A number of NGOs have closed their doors. 
uh, have been have not been able to get the funding uh, they originally thought they were going to get. Uh, in terms of government contracting, one NGO source here in uh, Guangzhou, where I'm based, told me that some government agencies are not dispersing their funds at this time. Uh, instead, they're asking NGOs to take out loans to carry their activities, and then they'll get hopefully the the um, the funds later to pay back the loans. Uh, so anyway. As a result of these changes in the NGO ecosystem, uh, government contracting has become a major funding source for Chinese NGOs, which means that the government's influence on NGOs has grown considerably compared with 10 years ago when NGOs relied more on foreign funding. Uh, in fact, some scholars argue that government contracting is part of a larger trend of party state co-optation or absorption of NGOs. So the second comment I wanted to uh, address is, um, is this kind of trend of co-optation or absorption by the party state a real danger in China's authoritarian system? And I think my answer to that would be a kind of a qualified yes. Um, and I think we need to look beyond government contracting for the reasons. I think there's three drivers of co-optation in the system. Uh, the first one is a sustained crackdown on independent rights-based NGOs over the last few years. Uh, this crackdown has increased the costs for NGOs who want to remain outside the system, who want to remain independent. The, um, there's also been a number of laws that were talked about uh, yesterday, the overseas NGO law, the charity law, and also the related regulations about registration of NGOs. These laws have made it much more important than ever to be registered, to be um, you know, legit, uh, legally registered. Uh, the, the barriers to registration have been lowered uh, in China, uh, but government contracting, uh, the way that NGOs are evaluated, the social credit system are being used to sort of, to keep NGOs in, in line once they're registered. Uh, at the same time, there are those individuals and groups that choose not to register or that cannot get registered. Uh, and these NGOs will remain on some form of a blacklist. They, people, I mean, there is no known blacklist, but a lot of my NGO friends talk about their, them being on a kind of a blacklist that um, then is shared uh, from you know, uh, locality to locality. The, the third driver that I wanted to talk about was the strengthening of the Leninist system of party control and loyalty for NGOs that are working inside the system. So we see this with the requirement to establish party groups and to carry out party activities in registered NGOs. Uh, this, is, uh, this establishment of party groups is now, from what the, the sources that I, I, have been, I hear from, is now part of the NGO's evaluation by civil affairs and also helps to strengthen their own reputation inside the system when they want to work with official partners. So these trends, um, the, the crackdown on independent NGOs, the growing use of laws to formalize and institutional, institutionalize the benefits of working inside the system, and then the uh, strengthening of this Leninist system of party control, these three drivers are, I think, are drivers of state co-optation. And all three of these saw a sharp rise around 2013, 2014, when Xi Jinping came into power. It's hard to know if all of this is part of a larger master plan, but the overall effect I think has been to lead registered NGOs into 
uh, maybe you could say greener walled pastures where they can graze comfortably, but under watchful eyes while keeping the critical NGOs outside the walls where they are left to fend for themselves. Um, my third comment is how have is about how NGOs have responded to government contracting in this sort of new period. I mean, a number of NGOs I, I spoke with said that accepting contracting money means you're acting as a kind of adjunct to the government. You're working on government priorities rather than your own mission. This was mentioned yesterday. Government contracting only covers project costs, not the core costs of the organization or staff salaries. You have to cozy up to government agencies and to neighborhood committees. Uh, that are going to house your offices. You have to talk about service delivery. You can't talk about empowerment. Um, now, some NGOs have refused government funding in principle for this reason, because they don't want to be hemmed in. They don't want to be co-opted. But there are other NGOs um, that I spoke to, including those who you know, are wary about co-optation, that are more, how would you say, pragmatic um, they, for, for different reasons. Uh, for one, yeah, they're pragmatic because they, sh they don't have good alternatives. Um, Chinese foundation money and crowdfunding are just limited. Uh, second, I think they think there's some overlap between government priorities and their own priorities. They think they, they can still use government contracting to advance some of their own priorities. They also believe they can serve as sort of useful early warning systems for the government in communities on social issues. Uh, the third, I think, reason is that the, the sort of fragmented nature of authoritarianism in China, uh, which is, uh, a lot of people have written about this, um, and it's true, I think, even during this period where central control has become much stronger, there still is a lot of local variation. Some local agencies are more open-minded, and they're willing to try new things. So I will give you a few examples. Um, an NGO in uh, Shenzhen I spoke with is working on training company and union officials on collective bargaining. Collective bargaining is a rather sensitive topic. So I was kind of struck to hear that they were actually using government contracting money from the district level union to do this kind of training. Um, an NGO in Western China um, is working on local governance and public participation using government contracting money and also equal education for migrant children. So, you know, some NGOs can find uh, good, some spaces to work while using government contracting. Um, finally, an NGO in Shenzhen that works with women workers and migrant children said they're exploring other channels to get government support. They don't call this government contracting. They call, one is this uh, collaboration with the Judicial Bureau for small project funding. And another is bidding on projects that are supported by the government, which if they like the project, they'll give you more money and publicity. Um, the Chinese term for this is uh, chuangko. I, I still don't know that much about this, but it does appear that there are other programs which NGOs say are more flexible and come with fewer conditions. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll just stop there and uh, just say, you know, that the, the picture, the real picture is a little bit more complicated, but um, you know, anyway, I think that it's, it's important to look at government contracting within these larger sort of ecosystem uh, changes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sean. Um, you're, you're welcome to add your questions into the chat function. 
Um, before we go to questions, uh, would any of the panel like to respond to anything they've heard from the other panel members? Um, Jude? Yeah, I would just like to say, oh, well, I, the, those were wonderful contributions on, on the panel. And I, I just wanted to respond quickly to Natasha, because you were highlighting the, um, the effects of new public management style uh, rationales and mechanisms on service delivery and service delivery by NGOs. And I just wanted to say really, um, in doing our research, and this fits in with Sean's point about, you know, the complexity, we actually had a lot of discussion about, well, what effects, what actually was it about the contract that brought about certain effects? And to what extent could you attribute those to new public management mechanisms or um, attribute those to authoritarianism? And I guess there are questions about, well, when the two collide, do they also look different in a liberal democratic regime to authoritarian regime? You know, uh, it's interesting to consider, but there's so much to untangle when you start looking at this question of contracting to NGOs and trying to separate, separate out in your head, you know, how much is to do with very local context as, as Sean was highlighting the nature of the group, the nature of the services, the overall neoliberal thrust of contracting or the authoritarian regime. Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, uh, it, it is really complex. <laughs> Natasha, would you like to respond? No, I accept to uh, agree with Jude on the complexity. And, you know, as I said, even, you know, within um, a single country, there's complete, you know, layers of complexity across different service types where there's different approaches to contracting. And so it is really, uh, you know, difficult to disentangle those local effects, service effects, regime effects. It, it, you know, it's, you know, multiple layers of complexity here. Great, okay, well, let's go to some of the questions that are now flowing in. Uh, the first question is from Kess Akta. How have rights-based NGOs worked within China, especially around the current paradigm with the Uyghur population? If they haven't been successful, how can NGOs be effective in stimulating meaningful work, which aligns with human rights rather than the values of the regime they work in? One of the panel like to respond to that. Um, I could respond. Um, one of the NGOs I, I spoke with um, complained that in all his meetings with, uh, you know, companies and funders, uh, international funders, that all they could ask him was, what about the Uyghur situation? Um, because, you know, there's so much attention on the Uyghur situation, on supply chains in Xinjiang and so forth. He couldn't answer it because he doesn't know anything about it. And, you know, he doesn't want to talk about it. Um, so, yes, it's very difficult. I mean, it's, um, I think NGOs in China, they, they, they work on what they can do. Uh, and, um, you know, he says he, he just wished that, um, that uh, people from outside would stop asking him these questions and, not, and recognize that he can't, he just, there's nothing he, he can do about it. There's nothing he can, he can say about it because it's just a very sensitive topic. 
Regina, would you like to respond more generally in terms of what you found about um, NGOs being able to act on values and human rights, uh, particularly perhaps with the HIV and migrant groups? Thank you, Karen. It is it is an important question. We ended up the, the discussion yesterday with, with that question is specifically about what strategies can NGOs uh, pursue in order to maintain their lines of work um, and in order to be able to pursue those rights-based agendas. And what we found in the field work is that um, one of the issues, one of the, one of the ways that uh, NGOs uh, do this is by duplicating and uh, having one NGO that is pursuing uh, government contracts and only does service delivery and then creating another NGO or a business alongside the main NGO that pursues a like the, the, the rights-based agendas. Um, not only that does that mean that they register as a business, but that they actually do create a business in order to raise funds that can be cross-subsidized and, and, and actually pay for, for some of the work on, on rights. Um, there's also the issue of balancing, and uh, Sean, you mentioned this, uh, diversifying sources of income. Uh, it's important to think about how grants uh, against contracts allow for more flexibility and more, and more space for NGOs to actually decide on what they want to work in to design the project and the program itself. Uh, whereas in contracts, you need to abide for, to, the, to the contract stipulation. So uh, some NGOs try to get money from grants and keep on having uh, sources of funding from, from foreign uh, organizations as well. Um, and some of them actually also think that uh, complying for some time with the government, therefore uh, creating good relations with government in order to later on be able to, to navigate and, and pursue more rights-based agenda little by little by little is, an, is a strategy to, to pursue. And some of them do this as well. So both in, in human rights and like labor rights, we've seen this as well. In HIV AIDS, we've, we've seen some cases in which the, especially the creation of a business alongside is a, is a resorted strategy. Great. So uh, we'll go to the question from Katja Levy from Berlin, uh, who has also been working on Chinese foundations and service contracting for migrants. Um, Sean mentioned foundations funding social organisations. And uh, Katya would like to know, in the three-year project, have we come across the current situation of foundations funding social organisations? For a long time, there was only a little cooperation between the two. And then after the uh, 2008 uh, Winchun earthquake, cooperation improved. But how is it now and what are the trends? So in the field work, um, Jude and Regina, the relationship with foundations, did that come up? As um, as well, uh, <laughs> I, I think maybe, I think Sean, you raised it, so maybe this is a question for you, but um, we didn't do a lot of work on, on that very specific relationship, that, that wasn't the focus of our research. Um, but from my knowledge on other research projects, it's, it's if you're tackling sensitive issues, there are 
the domestic foundations also feel they have to be careful about what they support or are not willing to support issues that like HIV, people living with HIV AIDS, for example, that may be considered rather um, are stigmatized. And so some foundations may shy away from supporting um, these more marginal uh, issues um, in society, marginalized issues, I should say. I mean, I want Sean whether, as you raise foundations, whether you would concur with that or? Sean, you're on mute. I mean, I, yeah, I published something about that, I think about maybe two years ago. Um, the article is about why Chinese foundations don't really support uh, Chinese NGOs, but, um, and you know, that the situation has got somewhat better, but um, a lot of Chinese foundations, uh, they, they just uh, implement their own projects um, rather than do what we call grant making. Uh, <clears throat> that, you know, there's, that, there are some bright spots like uh, in the environmental sector. Um, there are some, you know, foundations that do support environment, good environmental work. Um, Foundations, Chinese foundations also like, uh, they also try to stick with the, the priorities of the government because the two are closely aligned. Um, so it is difficult to get support for, you know, more, um, more rights-based work. Um, but um, yeah, there are some, I mean, for rights-based, some interesting sort of examples. And I think Regina mentioned one, but um, some, uh, Friends of Nature, which is um, an environmental organization, has an interesting kind of um, is an interesting case because they're sort of on the front lines of um, public interest litigation against polluting companies. Uh, and I, you know, in terms of how they fund that, they said foundations don't want to fund that because it's too sensitive. Uh, so what they do is they do crowdfunding. Uh, they say people from you know public, the uh, society is willing to support their litigation work, uh, and that's how they often supported is through that kind of crowdfunding. Thank you. Uh, there's a question from Gossia Djokomov um, about institutional duplication and examples of how NGOs achieve greater autonomy in that way. I think perhaps Regina, you have spoken to that. Did you want to add anything more to that? I think that um, that's what I meant in, in, in with organizations, yeah, not, not only registering with another, under another category, but also like creating a business alongside or creating another organization to pursue those goals, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Kaho Mok uh, agrees with Sean that we must be aware of the diversity and regional differences in NGOs across China. Uh, in his field work, many of the NGOs are very pragmatic and try other means to become social entrepreneurs rather than solely relying on state funding. Uh, diversity and regionalism happens not only in China, but also as Natasha noted in Australia. Uh, he's found in field work in China that some NGOs actually try to align their mission and vision with the government in order to expand their spaces for offering social services. I wonder, Natasha, if you might comment on that one in terms of how 
uh, in your work, Australian NGOs avoid or manage that co-option uh, with, with government? Um, so I suppose because, I mean, co-option is, you know, a concern when you are working with, with government as it is in, you know, in liberal, um, you know, in, in the context of Australia as well as, as um, other areas. I mean, and I mean, one of the, um, you know, is, issues has been how to maintain independence uh, while, you know, and autonomy and in particular advocacy capacity um, and actually, our research did show um, that that you know many organisations do have what is called gag clauses um, in their contracts, and I'm sure that's familiar um, in other contexts um, as well. Which is a kind of you know evidence, clear, very clear evidence, you know, that an organisation is, I suppose, you know, unable to kind of advocate in the way that they might want to if they weren't. Um, you know, so this issue of, of co-option, co co you know, is present in, in liberal. Um, yeah, I mean, one, one, one way, no, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. Uh, so a question from John Casey. Apart from Sean, the speakers seem to ascribe little agency to non-profits. Is there any ability of nonprofits in China through contracting to influence service and even rights agendas? Drew? Yeah, I just wanted to thank you very much for this question. I think it's most, uh, very pertinent. Um, I was just building on what Sean was talking about on whether NGOs decide to contract or not. In our research, we found many different responses of NGOs to the opportunity to contract. And for some, it is the perfect thing is because the shared there are very strong shared interests and it's precisely what those organizations want to be doing and yes it does open opportunities for influencing government officials if relationships are good uh, but i i think there's there is quite a there is a lot of agency you can't impose contracts and you, you can't make people do things the ngo has a choice in some ways as whether or not to engage in contracting and how it's going to manage that and i think regina mentioned you know instances well okay we'll do this contract with government maybe to get this source of money but and to do this type of work but for our other work that we want to do we're going to to, to manage that in a, in a different way so i think the agency is very much there um and um it, Yes, and also in terms of influencing services um, and uh, managing uh, community officials and so on. There's, there is room for flexibility, room for manoeuvre, room for um, pursuing NGO goals as well. Thanks, Jude. A question from Joanna Klabish. Due to the new law registering as something other than ACSO, however, cuts you off from international NGO cooperation and funding for projects in China. Will uh, the corona crisis affect Chinese civil society organisations sphere being so severe that government might loosen some of the restrictions on international NGOs and Chinese NGO and international NGO cooperation? Or will the path of starving those connections go on as before? 
Who would like to take that one? Um, maybe sure. I'll, I'll give it a try. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like to, I mean, it might be wishful thinking. <laughs> um, I think that the, um, I think the Corona crisis will maybe will be an opportunity for the, um, the government to try to show that it can do something to support the sector. I think there is, um, I think they want to show that, um, I mean, they're, they're they are interested in shaping the sector. Uh, I don't think they are interested in going back to the old days where uh, you had more in, uh, international NGO cooperation. Um, I think international politics also makes it uh, very difficult. I mean, given what's happening with um, the US and China, and even now increasingly some European countries and, and China. So I'm not. Um, I'm not optimistic. Great, thank you. Thank you, Sean. I was also, I wanted to add something that kind of also addresses this question, but also adds to what Jude was saying before about the agency of organizations. Um, I think there is, there is uh, agency and as, as Jude mentioned, there are organizations that are basically designed and uh, their mission is service delivery and that is the space that they're occupying and uh, contracting is precisely what they want to do and they engage with that and they can also tap into uh, relationships with local governments in order to um, uh, advocate for the needs of that particular group which is already within the priorities of the government so within that uh, defined space of contracting there is there is uh, space for agency and autonomy of organizations that are uh, pursuing those objectives. The, the issue with contracting, I th what we found is that there's little space for organizations to negotiate the terms of contract and to negotiate, for example, the, the design of the project and the service. In most cases, price, for example, um, and uh, the objectives of the project are already defined by the government. So for rights-based agendas, uh, NGOs that work on rights-based agendas, it is it's quite difficult to, to combine the two. Although, as I mentioned before, one of the strategies that organizations might take is little by little build on those relationships, comply with the terms of contract and build relationships with government in order to, in longer term, be able to slowly advocate for, for a broadening of uh, priorities of the government to also include other other social groups that are not being included already. Thanks Regina. Um, so now for something different, Tim Pringle, I think you had your hand up. Did you want to say something rather than write something? Um, and you can take your mute off, I think. Oh, hi. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Karen. Um, great, great presentations and uh, great discussion. I, I did put my question uh, in, in the chat, so I'll just refer to that, which was, and I may have missed this, apologies, because I lost connection. Um, but can, can you talk about uh, how agents, state agencies evaluate service pr provision and indeed their relationships with, with, with NGOs? Are, are, you know, a little bit about the criteria used, given party building within within the NGO sector right now, are there overt political criteria coming into play? Is there a grading system 
um, it would be good to hear a little bit about that. And again, my apologies if you if if, if this was in if you've already discussed this, uh, I did lose connection. Thanks. Um, I can kick off, and and um, other panelists can add to that uh, as well. Just to say that in terms of the political criteria, I mean, in relation to establishing political committees, I recall interviews where interviewees said that. Um, if, if you haven't yet um, established a party cell, you won't be evaluated so highly, or you'll have less um, chance of getting the contract and your, your grading. There are five grades, so your grade um, will be lower than um, an NGO that has established and can demonstrate that it is engaging in party building. So I'll address that part of the question there. And yeah, maybe Regina and Sean would take up the other bits. Yes, the, the, the grading system is a, a five-grade system. Uh, in, in policy, uh, an organization that has lower than three, three grades will not be able to engage in contracting, though we found that in some places where the market is very limited of, of service providers, that, that might be flexible and, and local officials might decide for, for a lower grade organization to engage in contracting. But the, the policy says three, three, three grades. And yes, party committee is uh, having a party sale is one of the requirements. Another requirement would be having a number, certain number of professional uh, staff that can address the service. And this is very logic if you're, uh, if you're providing services that need specialized in, in professional staff, for example, social workers, that, that uh, there's a requirement in that as well. Um, the, there's two, ways of, uh, of evaluating organizations. One is in the bidding process, and that's very stringent uh, in order to get the bid, to win the bid. And then there's the monitoring and evaluation during the year of the contract. There's a number of times that uh, an organization is, it can be monthly and can be quarterly. And then at the end of the, of the project, there's another, um, another evaluation. We found that um, this is prioritizing quantitative measurements as well. This, this happens everywhere, as, uh, as we've seen with contracting, the prioritization of, of quantitative measurements, such as if the organization has, meet, has met the financial requirements and uh, the, the outputs of the contract. But um, we found that there's very little input from service users, of course, and uh, that there's very little input for, of, for example, the quality, how do you measure the quality of the service that is being delivered? This is measured by, for example, the number of activities that an organization has delivered and the number of participants and attendees of that activity, instead of is there an effect on the life of the people that are being uh, provided a service. Thanks. Thanks, Regina. I don't have anything to add to those great comments, but I just want to say hi, Tim. I sure. Great question. <laughs> it's sickening hi, that you Mom. haven't aged at all. <laughs> Okay, we have a question from Hua Wong from uh, Glasgow about community-based NGOs. Do they show differences in securing funding and cooperating with public sector or private sectors in community service delivery, for example, aged, elderly care or children's welfare? Uh, so maybe a, a, if anyone would like to comment on the different types of contracting with community-based NGOs, private sector, 
or public sector delivery in those areas? I, I didn't want to, I mean, I, I don't, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting, it's a good question. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to see if uh, Jude or Regina had any, I mean, if you gathered any information about, about this, but my, uh, my, my sources tell me that there is a big push now to um, uh, divert, I mean, cha channel more government funding, uh, contracting into communities, into building uh, community organizations, more resilient communities, community volunteerism. I spoke with a, a large NGO um, that used to do uh, incubation of NGOs, and they were saying, well, you know what, the government thinks that there's too many NGOs now, so <laughs> they don't want us to incubate anymore. Uh, what they want us to do is go into communities and want us to build these community-based organizations that are serving, you know, delivering services to the elderly and so forth. Um, and uh, that seems to be the new trend. So they're saying they're going to change their their uh, focus uh, of work. But I'm just curious if you had heard anything along those lines. Thank you. I can. Uh, I can. I just add something on that because I think that um, what we we didn't find that I think that this is not coming from our primary evidence, but this is based on uh, previous research by. by um, a colleague, um, the private sector is in the services for the elderly. There's a, 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 an important participation of private private sector, uh, bigger, larger than NGO sector, for example. Um, in the sectors that we've looked at, which are HIV/AIDS, labor, migrant workers, and uh, children with disabilities, we found we found that they're more. Uh, what we call NGO social organization slash social forces that might be uh, registered under the category of business, but are still uh, under the principle of a nonprofit uh, delivery. I mean, what one thing I could I just add something on the community organizations. I mean, this is a fundamental part of the strategy of contracting to NGOs and raises all kinds of issues around relationship between state and citizen and what should be the role of um, communities and asking community people to be more active and engage as volunteers and so on. I mean, one of the issues that came up in our um, research was that some NGOs, and this wasn't always the case, but were given to, uh, were informed that they could only work in one community. So you couldn't have your services delivered across a range of communities. And there seemed to be a lot of different experiences here. So it, was, it wasn't quite clear how much that might be a very local rule in one province or in one city. And it didn't seem to apply to all NGOs, but some NGOs had been informed they could not, for example, uh, go to another district and open up um, an officer and deliver services. And to me that suggested, and I may be wrong here, thinking conspiratorially, that actually this was part of the more general tendency in China to um, ensure that a civic organizations of whatever kind do not form nationwide um, links um, or organizations that can begin to accumulate power at a national level. But I may be overreading the situation. It may be just to do with what different local levels of local government uh, want to do. But I, I think that's a good point, Jude, because I think 
um, that my understanding is that you know communities in China, as some of those 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 of us study China, communities in China are very di different than communities outside. I mean, in like liberal democratic countries, right? I mean, uh, communities outside are more fluid. It's a more but communities in China is an administrative. It's an administrative unit. Uh, it's tied into the state bureaucracy, uh, and this is how China controlled COVID, right? China controlled COVID through the neighborhood committees. Uh, that's because they have all these people staffed at the neighborhood level that can check your temperature, uh, you know, check and see if you're a resident, and uh, they do testing. Uh, there's all kinds of sort of services that are provide public services provided at the neighborhood or community level, um, and therefore I think you know communities are also easier to to control as well, then as opposed to like you know NGO type NGOs. Yeah. I'm going to have to cut us off, I'm sorry, because we've run out of time. Um, just to remind you all that uh, tomorrow we continue on with two more stimulating papers about uh, the role of social workers in contracting services and entrepreneurial uh, activities by contracting services. Um, this all comes under the heading leading up to the second panel on Thursday about what can we learn from the Chinese experience of NGOs. I'm sorry we don't have time to have a wrap up or to get to all of your questions, but it's certainly an incentive for you to come back tomorrow and uh, participate again. Thank you all so much and thank you to our wonderful panel.